Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Sarita Edwards was 41 when she became pregnant with her fifth child. Although they thought their family was complete, she and her husband were keen to welcome that child into their family. Her little boy, Elijah, was diagnosed with a chromosomal abnormality. In this podcast, she describes how healthcare responded to that pregnancy and the years of advocacy that followed his birth. Here to tell her story is Sarita Edwards. Sarita, I'm delighted to welcome you to this call. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're a busy lady. I want to roll back to before your son was born. What were your hopes and aspirations at that point in your lives? Thank you so much for the opportunity to share a little bit of our story. Before Elijah, we were a family of six. Our eldest child was getting ready for college. He had recently graduated high school and we were enjoying his last full summer at home. We were packing and gathering all of his things to to get him to campus. He was going to school about five hours away from our home. At that time, our daughter and two other boys after her, they were just enjoying the summer. The baby at the time was eight years old. We were in the process of looking for another home. We had made the decision to move. So we wanted to wait until the summer to let them finish the school year. And those were our plans. Professionally, both my husband and my careers were advancing. I was excelling at my job, was really excited about the direction we were going. Professionally, I felt like I was on the path of just reaching my long-term goals. And and things seemed really, really good. We had no intentions of any more children. My husband often jokes and says that we were preparing to purchase an RV <laughs> because we were huge football fans. And with a kid going off to college, we saw an opportunity to maybe travel a little more and just be adventurous. And I think that's the path that we were planning for before Elijah came on the scene. (laughs) You were living the American dream, as they say, here in other parts of the world. You had established your family, you had established your career, and you were making plans for the future. So tell us what happened at that point. Well, at that point, I started not feeling well. And I just had a couple of days over the weekend that I just didn't feel good. Talked to my husband. I think I had a couple of conversations with my sister and, you know, they just encouraged me to go to the doctor. I had my own ideas of what was going on, but not one time did I think I was pregnant. Made it through the weekend, decided to see the doctor on Monday morning. And this was the Monday before The Tuesday, we were scheduled to drop our big boy off to college. But went to the doctor, told them the symptoms and everything that I was having. 
I was planning in my own mind different procedures, just kind of diagnosing myself. And the doctor said, could you be pregnant? And I told her, well, I, I guess I could. I don't think I am. I was in my 40s and right at 41 and just didn't have any intentions on having another child. So she did some tests and everything, and she came back and said, you're pregnant. And I think in that moment, my initial thought was, you got to be kidding me. I think I was more shocked than anything, but I kind of just told myself, okay, you're fine. I'm thinking something major is going on. Not that a pregnancy isn't major. It was just the furthest thing from my mind. So I told her, I was like, well, when do I come back? We're, we're good. Okay, so we're pregnant. It really didn't hit until we made it back home that, that we were about to have another baby. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the conversation you had with your then college student son. He didn't want to know, did he, how this happened? He wasn't going to go into that. He did not. We, we told him. He was, I think he was packing up his television and maybe his gaming system. And we told him that I had just left the doctor and that I was pregnant. And the first thing he said was, he looked at us and said, are you trying to replace me? <laughs> And we told him, well, well, no, this is very much a surprise. So, so yeah, very, very much a surprise. It sounds like a very happy occasion. You were looking forward to having another child and you knew that this was not something you'd planned, but you were welcoming that news. What happened as the pregnancy unfolded? As the pregnancy unfolded, I was really having mixed emotions. I was very, very, very torn because, again, the baby was eight years old, and I never, ever thought we would be starting over again with a new baby. But I did embrace it and celebrate it, and around 22 weeks pregnant, we found out that our unborn child had some anomalies. He had some issues going on. That was really all that they told us initially. At that appointment, they did an ultrasound and and then decided that we needed to see a maternal fetal medicine specialist. They coordinated that appointment for us. And that's when we learned that our unborn child, Elijah, um, had a rare disease, a chromosome abnormality called Edwards syndrome, which is commonly known as trisomy 18. We were told not to Google search it. We were told to find a support group. And, and we were told that babies with this diagnosis don't survive. They don't survive in utero, much less the, the delivery process or even live past their first year of life. So they, they prepared us for Elijah to not survive. That sounds like a harrowing experience. And I want to, if you don't mind, explore that a little bit with you. How was the news broken to you? And what were the implications of what they were saying to you? What did they seem to be conveying to you at that time? How we got our diagnosis, I was actually 
partially clothed on an exam table. That's how our maternal fetal medicine specialist decided to break the news to us. He was very descriptive. He told us that Elijah was missing three-fourths of his brain, that his esophagus was offline, that a valve in his heart was not properly connected, and that it would probably only worsen once he was outside of the womb. He told us that Elijah had liver issues, kidney issues, that his stomach looked as if it was outside of the cavity. He had clenched hands, rocker bottom feet. Everything that we would have found had we Googled, which we ultimately did, but everything that that we, we found when we did a Google search is what he prepared us for. My husband had to ask the doctor to stop talking for just a second and give me a minute because I was so overwhelmed with what was being described. I think in my mind, all I saw was this monstrous being just from the words that he used to describe it and the guarantees that he gave of what this would look like and what this would be like for us as a family. I think I believed it. If I'm completely honest, I think based off the statistics that they gave us, the medical facts, I believed every single word that they gave. Trying to remain hopeful and take it as far as we could, but you don't forget a conversation like that. That's not something that you forget quickly or even today. It's something that I remember very, very descriptively, how he described our our little guy to us from an ultrasound. (laughs) It is said that we never forget how someone made us feel, even if we forget the words that they were using. What were you feeling at the time? I think at the time I was feeling fear. I was feeling aggravation. I felt like the doctor wasn't sensitive enough for the level of information that he was conveying. I felt like he was being very matter-of-fact with a conversation that needed a little bit more delicacy. I just, I felt overwhelmed. I felt, I was just really, really angry. And I think a lot of my anger and frustration stemmed from how the information was given. The information itself was difficult, but how it was said to us, it just made it even harder to digest. I think I was just a bag of emotions. I was all over the place. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa.
Medicine is, in many ways, a very technical subject. But it isn't like fixing a car, is it? It isn't like you're dealing with an inanimate object. You're dealing with people who are actually walking around the street afterwards, not mm-hmm. on a ramp in a garage. Mm-hmm. That's very accurate. I think for us, it seemed as if there was so much certainty behind the information that we were being given. It was a recurring, don't expect anything but this. I think that was one of the hardest parts of it all. Aside from the description of what we were dealing with, I think it was really, really hard that that when we tried to be hopeful, it felt like it was still being stripped away. We kept being reminded that these are the statistics. It's 99%. This is what you can expect. You shouldn't expect this. And so even when we wanted to hope for something, not that we knew what that was going to look like, we just wanted to stay hopeful. It felt like we were being forced to just accept whatever they wanted us to accept. And that was really, really difficult. It was just really, really hard to to try to make sense of it all. And then you think about having to process all of that yourself, but then figure out how do you tell your other children that this is what we're experiencing and how do you communicate that to a child who's living five hours away from home now? And so it was just a lot to juggle all at one time, for sure. And to feel like you didn't have that medical support, it just made it even more worse. You think about all the things on the other side of it, social work and child life services and all the different support that we know about now that we didn't know about then that could have possibly helped us through that time. But none of that was made available to us. It was difficult. What happened after that? What happened once the diagnosis was made and you then had to make a decision, presumably? So after we received the diagnosis, we continued to see our medical team locally where we live. Having had four other children prior to Elijah, we knew what that prenatal experience should look like. And it changed a little bit after we got the diagnosis. We noticed that a lot of my appointments became, you know, more in and out. Let's check blood pressure. Let's check for a heartbeat. Let's check for some activity. But it wasn't the same normal prenatal care that I had received for the other four children. Around 30 weeks, our medical team, our OB team, said that they didn't think the hospital in our local community could accommodate what we were dealing with. So they recommended that we deliver at a hospital two hours away, which was a research institution. You know, and we thought about it. We were okay with it. It was from a city that I was born and raised. We knew the hospital. 
we were familiar with and my other four kids were born at that hospital. So we thought it was a great idea. We started commuting about once a week, sometimes twice a week. And at 39 weeks, they decided to induce me. During that process, I labored 16 and a half hours, which was a really, really long time for me. I had been induced two other times and I had never labored over about six or seven hours. So to this day, I really don't know why it took 16 and a half. It was just some inconsistencies. The medication kept being changed. It was just a lot going on. And I think once I reached that 16th hour, I think we were all tired and we were all frustrated and trying to figure out what's going on. They had told us that Elijah's heart could stop during the delivery process. So I had elected not to have a heart monitor on because I didn't want to hear that. And I don't know, I guess at about that 16th hour, I was just at my breaking point and I told them, we need to do something. I cannot stay in this state much longer. It was shortly after that, that statement that Elijah arrived on his own terms. The neonatologists and everybody, they just kind of stood around initially. They did ask us what our wishes were in terms of oxygen or if he needed to be resuscitated or anything like that. And and thankfully, none of that was ever needed for him. They basically told us that he looked consistent with what we had been told prenatally. We were familiar with newborn screening. They said that he didn't need it. I nursed my other babies. Elijah was born with bilateral cleft lip and palate, and so he couldn't nurse. We had to ask for formula. They didn't offer. They told us to enjoy him because he would probably pass away soon. You know, my husband had to ask them to clean him up for us and just all the things that were typical and normal for our other four children. We had to ask for, for Elijah. And that kind of started our journey of real advocacy and legislative advocacy and public policy. We were discharged post-delivery in hospice care. Elijah stayed in hospice care for about seven months. And after he aged out of hospice, because we were pursuing life-sustaining measures for him, they told us that they, they couldn't put him back in hospice care. And we pursued life-sustaining measures because it was a conflict. And we were okay with that. We wanted to pursue every viable option for him. And we just began to coordinate his care. Looking through medical records, the little bit that we had, I picked up the phone and called a cardiologist and just said, this is what we know. This is what we've been told. And can we get an appointment? And they brought us in. And, and that really started the process of trying to learn what we were dealing with. 
thankfully, we had a really great pediatrician who supported whatever we wanted to do. Thankfully, we were fortunate enough to have good health insurance to where I could make a lot of those arrangements myself without having to go through my pediatrician. But it was still a process of trying to figure out where do you start? Who do you start with? What services do you even need? Elijah was 10 months old before we ever saw a geneticist with a genetic condition. It was not something that we knew we could benefit from. No one had ever made that recommendation to us. It just really became a lot of trying to figure out what doctor do we need to see? What service do we need to find? What resource do we need to uncover? for Elijah to have the best quality of life that he possibly can. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. Sounds that the system had said to you, it's your choice whether you have this baby or not but if you make that choice you're on your own that's exactly how it felt that is exactly how it felt that if you choose to go down this path you have to figure it all out yourself that's exactly how it felt How was Elijah coping with all of this was he making progress were you happy that he was getting the best possible chance to have a life? Um, Elijah was doing very well. And honestly, it's because he was doing so well compared to what we had been told that we began to fight as hard as we did for him. We've had doctors as recent as last year, 2021, tell us that we didn't need services for a child who'd probably never walk anyways. And it was after he reminded us of Elijah's diagnosis. But Elijah, he continued to live. He continued to make progress. Elijah, he started out on a bottle and then transition to trying to learn how to use a cup and and then eat from a spoon. He just continued to show us that we needed to push for our healthcare team to do more for him. It really wasn't until we had a really challenging experience and we had to be airlifted to a hospital two hours away for him, that we connected with some of the best medical professionals, they really began that process of us working with a medical team and a healthcare team to navigate Elijah's care. They connected us with doctor after doctor, all the people that we should have been seeing. They coordinated all of that for us. And that was the first time that that had happened. And Elijah was almost a year old before we made it to that spot. 
We still see that group of doctors now. Elijah has about 18 specialists. And all of them are two hours away from us. But it was just a great connection to make it to that point. We're glad that we reached that point. We're very, very grateful for that. It was just heartbreaking, if you will, that it took so long for us to get there. A lot of services that were offered to us, you know, we had one year of three-year programs because nobody ever shared those resources with us. But Elijah, he continues to defy the odds. He continues to show us that, that we need to have more conversations and really try to raise awareness about receiving a diagnosis and how do you coordinate care? How do we bridge that gap between receiving the diagnosis and coordinating care? He is definitely doing a lot of what they told us he never would. Tell us what Elijah was bringing to the family. You've talked a lot about what you brought to his care, the fight that you had to get him, the treatment that he deserved. How was he contributing to the family? He has definitely brought us closer together. I think we really appreciate each other more. I think we we are more intentional about just spending time together, more intentional about the importance of inclusion. Elijah being nonverbal, he uses a wheelchair, a gait trainer. He is very much a little person with a personality, but he has shown us why it's so important to not waste time, to really, really embrace that time because you just, you never know how much of that time you have. We just appreciate every little piece of him. I think as a mom, he has shown me perseverance. He has shown me just the power of when you feel like your back is up against the wall, the fight that you would give to get out of that corner. I think I've always felt like I was a mama bear in a sense. But having Elijah, it's just, it's birthed something else out of me. How we have to fight for him is completely different than how we've ever had to fight for our other children. I think even with the kids, he has really shown them how to appreciate each other. When you have a sibling who you're being told may not survive or could pass away any day, that teaches you how to really embrace each other. They still bicker and <laughs> and have their little moments and they may yell a little bit if he runs over their toe with a wheelchair, but I think for sure it has taught all of us how to appreciate one another and, and how to really better appreciate one another because you just, you never know how much time you have and you shouldn't take that time for granted, however long it may be. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, Amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare.
You've gone on to advocate for Edward syndrome and for patients who face this situation where they're being told it's all hopeless in a very technical sense. But you've lived this and you've lived the reality which is quite different. Tell us a little bit about the advocacy work that you're doing and how we can support you in your cause. We started a foundation. We felt like the best way to really support a lot of families was to to start a foundation. And and so we started the EWE Foundation and EWE, those are Elijah's initials, Elijah Wayne Edward. We like to share that we take care of Elijah and the goal of the foundation is to take care of everybody else. A lot of our advocacy is really helping parents and other families understand the power of their voice and empower them to be okay with pushing the narrative. Statistically, only 5 to 10% of babies with Edwards syndrome will live past their first birthday. And it does give leverage to a lot of doctors to refuse to, to give you care. And so we want to empower families and patients and parents to know that when a doctor gives you something that you just disagree with, that's an opportunity for a conversation. We're going to get angry. We're going to get upset. We're going to disagree. But don't miss the opportunity to communicate and share. You'd really like another alternative if there is one. Let's talk about if there's another solution. So that's a lot of our advocacy. We also do legislative advocacy. We do support legislation that we believe can create better health outcomes for families like ours and patients in the rare disease community. We are huge advocates for legislation that we believe specifically covers what we experienced. And so we really champion a lot of those legislative efforts. I think, too, we, in terms of advocacy, we really, really support self-care and mental health, understanding what our journey was like. We try to create opportunities for families to get in front of as much as they can through the different programs that we offer through the organization. And then, too, there's financial advocacy. We understand that there's a financial burden that comes with caring for a child with, with medical complexities. And that financial burden gets high for a lot of families, even with the best insurance. And so a lot of our financial advocacy is really helping families know that resources are out there. We do have a financial assistance program ourselves for families with trisomy 18 to try to remove some of that financial burden. And so our advocacy, it really stretches across a lot of areas. And it's funny that I don't think initially we thought about it as advocacy. We were just working and we were just being parents and we were just trying to figure it out. It all really started with an idea of if if majority of these babies pass away, how can we remove the burden of having to bury your child? And it's just grown and birthed to this organization that it is. But I think because Elijah, he is our blueprint. Every time he hits a new milestone, we figure out how can we make this process a little easier for the next family? 
And we try to incorporate that into our mission, into the work that we do to try to get in front of parents and families when they get the diagnosis, hopefully, so they can get resources a lot sooner than we did. I was reflecting on that figure that you quoted that only 5% live beyond their first birthday. And I wonder if it's because the system simply does not support them to survive beyond that first birthday. And in fact, the technical truth might be quite different. It may well be that these babies would survive a lot longer than that if only healthcare wouldn't give up on them quite so easily. You know, we completely agree with that. Um, That's something that we hope to explore. That's a question that we've had. That's a thought that we've had. We don't think we've done anything super special. We just decided to push the narrative. A lot of the conversation is consistent and it, and it's the same. You should this, this, or this. I think now we're just not afraid to ask why. Why should we this? Why should we do a G-tube when he's eating from a spoon? Why should we accept this if if he's doing really, really well with this? And so those are all the, the advocacy tools that we want to give other families because we have that same thought. Is it the healthcare space? creating what looks like no other option. And families don't know to question. Families don't know to ask. I think about that first time mom, I just happened to be four children in when we had Elijah, but for the first time mom or, you know, or the single mom, the family that doesn't have the best health insurance or the best support system. We want to try to put those questions out there so families feel empowered enough to ask. Even if they don't, we want them to feel empowered enough that they can if they want to. So Rita, the work that you're doing is extraordinarily important, not just for rare disease, but for any condition, because the lessons that you are teaching us relate to How we respond to one another when someone's in distress? How do we help them to navigate the choices that they want to make? Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. We will make sure that all of your contact details and all of your work is included in the show notes to this show. It's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.